Welcome to the Xterra Podcast. The Xterra mission is to explore and discuss the business of space and its effect on the national and global economy, as well as life on Earth. How does what happens in space affect your life every day? That's what we're exploring on the Xterra website, as well as on this podcast. My guest is Tom Cook, CEO of Spacely.Work, a company which helps match talent and companies with projects on an as-needed basis. It's gig work for the aerospace industry. And Tom, thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it, Tom. Where did you get the idea for Spacely? Yeah, it was a, it was a handful of uh, things that kind of came together. Um, I was in the military for 24 years in the Air Force. Uh, when I retired, I started consulting. And... Um, you know, I was using my network uh, for my opportunities. And as there was plenty of opportunities in the uh, industry, um, I was trying to figure out how to capture those and scale, um, you know, kind of what I had brought uh, with expertise and skill sets uh, to the industry. And when I thought about hiring five or 10 or even 100 people, I thought, well, I don't know if, you know, again, I don't know if I can solely get after that with a company like that. And um, I had also about simultaneously read a book uh, called Reimagining Work by Rob Biederman. Uh, who went to Harvard Business School and started a company called Catalan Technologies. And they had developed this marketplace uh, for folks that had been at Bain, McKinsey, uh, BCG, all the, the major uh, consulting groups. And I was fascinated by the, um, the platform, the technology, the network uh, that was being created. And it really compared in my mind to um, an open marketplace like Uber and Airbnb and Turo, but for talent. And so uh, from that point, I just became really enthralled with the idea. I started really uh, researching it, uh, which industries were using the open talent marketplace concept and how we could potentially adopt that concept for the aerospace industry. So then what's your background in aerospace? Yeah, so I was in the Air Force for 24 years um, from 1993 to uh, 2017. I did a lot of things. I was enlisted. I did presidential communications uh, for Air Force One. So I had to understand some communications standards and protocols for that. Um, went to the Air Force Academy. I went to pilot training. So I uh, had background in science and engineering uh, by going to the Academy. Um, left flying and got put into uh, space and missile systems and uh, very technical work and became a program manager uh, for 16 years of that career uh, for brand new space systems. And so I uh, worked in all phenomenologies, uh, you know, GPS, uh, infrared, radar, um, counter space communications in the RF spectrum. And, uh, and so we worked across uh, a lot of different systems and capabilities and developing new technologies and systems and, and deploying operating sustain them. So um, I had a lot of background in military space. And as I got out, and started consulting, I was really excited to work with a lot of startups because we're seeing uh, a real increase in commercial space uh, companies and ones that are actually pursuing similar technologies and uh, capability sets that we were working on in the military uh, during my time in the, in the Air Force. Now, in this age of COVID, we've seen a lot of great, the kind of the, referred to sometimes as the great resignation. Uh, and there are also labor shortages, which is, is a real kind of dichotomy that there are so many open positions and yet there seems to be nobody who wants to take the jobs. Is a solution like Spacely.Work a good way to address that issue? We hope it's a way. Um, we think that it's multifaceted in the uh, in a strategic sourcing uh, for talent. 
Um, certainly, there, we think that in the you know coming years, there's still going to be the traditional uh, employment model uh, that's out there, uh, where you go through HR and, and legal, and you become a badge wearing company person. Um, but uh, as we saw, there was a lot of reasons. There's a lot of reasons why people can't have traditional full time employment, um, whether it's uh, location based. Um, whether they have a, a sick family member they have to take care of and, and move back to a location where maybe that job doesn't, um, you know, physically reside. Uh, maybe uh, like me, I'm retired, um, you know, and, and have an ability to pick and choose the projects and, and work that I do. Um, and, and otherwise, um, you know, organizations are also artificially limited um, in their capacity and their skill sets based on how many employees they can have. And so we hope that by having a marketplace, it can be a part of their overall sourcing strategy, which is having part uh, employees and company people, having uh, temp purse people that are temp for hire and going through the you know, traditional hiring process, but also somebody that they may not have internal to the organization or have access to otherwise because of location or other reasons, like I mentioned. So having an ability to also tap into additional capacity I think we'll hope, hopefully start to get at the supply and demand mismatch that we're seeing in aerospace. Right now we have over 16,000 open jobs in the aerospace industry. It's compelling work, uh, it's good paying work, uh, and yet there's 10 million unemployed Americans. So there's, there's a mismatch there uh, that we're trying to get after. And we believe that bringing in additional optionality, uh, flexibility in how we work, um, all accelerated by the pandemic, uh, will hopefully be able to um, show that there's people out there that are energized, enthusiastic, passionate about working in industry, and this hopefully will create an additional pathway for them to do so that wasn't existing in traditional employment models. But does your research show that the talent pool matches the jobs that are available? Because as you said, it's, it's highly technical work, and a lot of those people who may be out of work now have not had the kind of training that would be needed to work in the aerospace industry. Uh, you know, there's so many aspects to that question. I, I'll start with the first thing that is most important in our industry is the vocabulary. And that's really for any industry. And so if someone has the vocabulary, and we saw this during you know, my time in the Air Force, we moved around very frequently. Um, you know, we were moving every two to three years uh, in our assignments. But we had a, vocab a shared vocabulary. And that's what we find is one of the most important things to have first and foremost in the industry is if you have a shared vocabulary and a shared understanding of some of the basic fundamentals, it's easier for you to get plugged into an internal team. Um, but we also recognize that because technology is changing so quickly, uh, it's not something to say that, well, this person has this specific skill because that skill may not exist in you know, three to five years. And so the ability to reskill, upskill, newly skilled people is going to be very important as technology continues to accelerate and we continue to adopt new technologies in aerospace. And so why we think those are important skill sets and is important to focus on what types of skills we're building, we also want to create some type of common vernacular and vocabulary that makes it easy for folks to feel like they're part of the aerospace industry and community. And we start building a trust-based relationship with our marketplace and the people on it with these companies that we're trying to um, you know, put projects on our, on our marketplace with us. And of course, the other aspect of technology is, is that this kind of technology that we're using to conduct this interview right now didn't exist three to five years ago or was not widely used. That makes remote work a much easier task to accomplish. That's right. And, and what I've been advocating with the aerospace industry is, is you're seeing a collapsing of skill sets, meaning that 
a lot of different industries require someone like a data scientist. And if other industries are providing optionality and multiple pathways to get access to that intellectual and time capacity of that individual, that means if aerospace industry is not doing the same, they're going to lose out on opportunities to also compete for that same skill set because we're now all competing for the same skills out there. And so if we don't have the ability to say we have similar pathways to work in our industry as other folks are doing and have been successfully doing for some time, software industry is a great example, who has been doing this remotely for a long time. Um, you know, we're not going to be able to compete for the same types of talent because we don't have the same optionality. If, if we don't have um, the ability to do that, we're going to continue to see the supply and demand mismatch that we have currently of those 16,000 jobs because we continue to see a lot more investment being poured into the aerospace and space economy. And so we're going to need people to, to work, right? If that money's coming in, we need to find people that are willing to work and we need to be competitive in how we go out there and search for the folks that we want to work in our industry. Um, we'll talk a little bit about NASA, I'm sure, in, in a bit, but you know what we want to highlight is the, the traditional employment model really locks down talent and it's a binary decision. You're either an employee or you're not. You're either with Boeing or you're with Lockheed. We're trying to create more of a free market approach, which is that's been understandable by other industries, but aerospace that's, you know, in a very highly competitive um, industry like aerospace, it's, it's a, a newer idea that we want to share that talent and share that expertise across the board. The Space Force and NASA are looking at how to do that. If you're working on swarm technologies, as an example, uh, and for NASA, for interplanetary missions, and the Air Force or Space Force is interested in that same type of uh, concept and expertise, well, maybe that one person can share that expertise across NASA and Space Force simultaneously and how they work. And they're not necessarily a NASA employee or a Space Force employee, but they're, they're easily uh, you know, shuffled back and forth uh, through a more of an open market model. Take us through the process, both for an employer with a job that they need to have filled and an employee or someone who is looking for work in the, in the aerospace industry. When they come to Spacely.work, how does the process go for them? Well, for both sides, you know, it's a two-sided marketplace. So we have to solve for one side or the other first. And we decided to try to go out and see if there was folks that this idea and concept resonated with. And then the first um, week that we had people sign up, we had over 100 people sign up. I couldn't have hired 100 people in a week, right? So that, that gave us some market validation that this um, concept resonated. So we asked those folks to go out there and sign up for an account and put, you know, initial profile on, and, and they've done that. Uh, on the employer side, now we're saying, hey, um, if you have work to do, which we believe you have a lot to, of work to do since you have 16,000 open jobs, how do you look at that job and then try to deconstruct what work needs to be done for that job? Because you have a lot of job postings and job boards, you can throw that job on, and those things are out there, Indeed and Monster and all that. But we need the employers to look at this a little bit more critically and we're seeing, we're seeing the challenges in the traditional hiring process. They'll go out and they'll say, hey, we need this skill set, this combination of skill sets. And that person actually does not exist in the world, right? Because they're just putting, you know, whatever uh, keywords are out there they think that will trigger, um, you know, these, these platforms to be able to provide them a, you know, a candidate. What we need the employers to do is look at, a pro at work and deconstruct that job into a work packages, projects, tasks. And we're looking at trying to encourage these employers to not only get off the work that needs to be done, but increase the velocity by doing these very short-term projects initially um, with people that they want to work with that haven't figured out how to work with them otherwise. And so we are trying to make it very easy for both sides to go onto the platform at spacely.work, fill out initial basic information, 
and you know the the, the project uh, that they want to put on the platform. And we've put program management software in the platform, so when there is a match. Uh, they can then go through the work together and have the collaborative tools, like you said before, that we have available to us, all kinds of forms uh, these days to get work done together in a remote environment. Who is your target audience, Tom? Are you targeting more startups? Are you looking more at established companies um, in between, or is it pretty much open to everybody? All of the above. You know, we um, what I really want Spacely to be able to do is get our collective arms around everyone that wants to work in aerospace. And when you think about even the folks that have already signed up for us, there's folks that wanna work with Lockheed, there's folks that wanna work with startups, there's folks that have um, all kinds of background that's gonna be able to support either type of of company. Um, So we wanna have, again, the optionality uh, through the partnerships that we create that gives people the opportunity to work with who would they want to, right? Uh, We talk a lot about try before you buy. Um, And this is for both sides, the employers and the talent. Uh, you know, aerospace is a small world, and I've talked to a lot of college graduates that are you know, wanting to get into the aerospace industry, not exactly sure how to do that, but they also want to make sure that they're making a decision that doesn't limit them or harm them in the future, meaning that they're worried that if they come in and they think they're going to, they're, they're excited about working with Lockheed or Boeing, and a couple weeks go by or months go by, or 18 months, which is the uh, average for a millennial to stay in a, in a work uh, environment these days, um, that when they make that change, that's actually negative for them to make that change. Uh, so what we're saying is these projects can give those folks an opportunity to build a relationship before they make that employment decision and deepen a relationship. And likewise, on the employer side, there's a lot of um, uh, challenges that go through the hiring process, the interviewing process, the HR process, the onboarding, and it takes a long time. And the employers are frustrated that it takes a while to get them onboarded just for the folks to leave shortly thereafter and that investment they've made. And our, our argument for that is, we agree, you've made that investment in that person. Why not retain an open channel to that investment? Account for the NDAs and the OCI issues but it, you, if, if it's binary in your decision and how you deal with that individual, you've either lost that individual or you have, you've gained them on you know, the corporate worksheet. But if they decide to leave for whatever reason, they have to move back home or they want a, a different challenge. Well, now if it's binary, you can't access that, that investment and that talent you've invested in. So we're trying again to show on both sides of a two-sided marketplace that there's other ways that you can continue to use this technology intermediary uh, to maintain and, and build these relationships with one another and, and create a broader uh, community of folks that want to work in aerospace, but may not be able to do it full time. And, and another example I'll use real quickly is NASA and their, and their contracting said, hey, we want to, one of the examples they use is we wanted one of the best data scientists to work on one of our very hard problems. But one of the best data scientists worked for Morgan Stanley, and we couldn't convince that person to come work for NASA as a GS-11, you know, and, and take a, a significant pay cut of, you know, almost $400,000. But we would want that expertise, uh, you know, on demand if we could have access to it. And so that's that's one of the, um, you know, kind of uh, hypothesis we have is there's actually a lot of people out there that would love to work with aerospace but they may not be willing to give up their current job, which may not even be in the aerospace industry. And as we continually to collapse these skill sets that are um, uh, you know, needed across various industries, we're gonna have to have more of an open model and not just a binary, you're in aerospace or you're not. We have to be able to open the aperture and get after um, the greater capacity of our, our country and uh, you know, more globally as well for the global um, you know, partners that uh, we've worked with in the aerospace industry as well. Do you think that 
smaller companies are going to be more open to this kind of a, of a um, scenario as opposed to a Boeing or a Lockheed that has years and years and years of, of corporate culture in place? Yeah, we, we've had success on both sides, but I would say the startups and, and one of the challenges startups have are especially ones that are showing success through um, the initial product market fit and fundraising uh, is that scalability of their own company. Hey, we want to hire 30 people or 90 people or, you know, 120 people. These are, you know, these are some numbers I'm hearing from some of the companies and, and they want to do it within the next year. And um, let's talk before we get to that success the startups that aren't having that success, they're not able necessarily to bring on the payroll uh, an astrophysicist or a geoplanetary scientist, but they need that, they need access to that expertise as they're growing before they can, you know, before they get revenues that are enough to bring those folks on to the payroll. And so we're saying, well, if we want some of these startups to have success, we want to have them have access to this fractional type of uh, capability. It's another reason why, you know, a lot of startups don't, you know, hang a shingle right off the bat and build up a huge office complex because that's a capital expense that they just really can't afford early on. It's the same when you're talking about bringing on talent. If you hire 10 people, that's a huge expense right off the bat. So we're, we're talking with the startup community and saying there's a better way to get access to the expertise if we can account for the things that are concerning to you. But, but as you're trying to scale and grow, not only trying to hire all those people, but even if you're not at that point where you have the revenues to be able to support, uh, you know, that workforce, but you need that expertise to be able to grow your company, your idea, your concept, your product market fit. Here's another way to be able to get access to that. We're talking with Tom Cook, CEO of Spacely.Work, which matches aerospace workers with projects on an as-needed basis. Take a moment right now to click on subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform to make sure you don't miss any of the podcasts or if you're watching on YouTube, any of the videos from Xterra, the Journal of Space Commerce. Tom, when did you establish Spacely? Uh, right before, luckily, right before the pandemic in January of 2020, we uh, we put the company together uh, in, in anticipation of a NASA RFP that was coming out, and um, we were made aware of it in November of 2019. Um, as we uh, understood what the request was going to be. Uh, we said, okay, this, you know, uh, this is opportunity for us to maybe get some market validation for this concept. And, um, and so we were already, we had already had the idea for two years, actually, before formation of the company. Um, me and uh, my co-founder, uh, John Samuelson, we had another co-founder that actually had a successful exit with his platform. Um, so he's a board advisor. We had another board advisor we had picked up as well, um, who she is a, a, a global expert in, in uh, marketplace uh, ecosystems and, and talent platforms. And so we were really already structuring uh, and pulling the team together, and we were waiting to see if um, you know this uh, RFP would come out as kind of the impetus of putting the company together, in direct um, response, you know, to saying, hey, you know, we want to have a, a formed company to be able to respond to this uh, this solicitation. So then, what types of skill sets does Spacely represent? All kinds, you know, hard and soft skill sets. All right, we have all kinds of engineers uh, that have already uh, signed up: electrical, mechanical, aerospace. Um, and, and, you know, why I wanted to highlight the soft skills as well is because in a remote environment, in a collaborative environment, you don't just have to rely on those things, right? You also have to rely on how do you communicate and collaborate. And we've built up in, within the platform a community feature, um, an ability for us to um, share knowledge uh, across the platform, um, to collaborate and, and really um, build those relationships and build the trust uh, within the platform. Uh, we really took those lessons from Airbnb. We were joking at the time of, you know, when Airbnb first came out, 
um, what convinced us that we could go to somebody's house and we would survive the night and not be murdered in our sleep, right? There was some intrinsic trust that, you know, we were developing, um, you know, in all these platforms uh, that are out there. I trust that if I go to this platform, this outcome will um, come out of it. Uh, so it's not just the hard skill sets uh, that are important to us. It's also developing those soft skill sets uh, to make sure that, um, we can bring in uh, folks in, in a non-disruptive way that want to work this way. And so they're more encouraged and they're going to be um, more uh, passionate, enthusiastic about working in this way because they want to work. They, they're the ones that want to work in the industry. They just have whatever constraints um, uh, against traditional full-time employment models that don't allow them to be a full-time employee. And so you'll see that the soft skill sets are just as important as um, the, you know, the, the hard uh, skill sets that we have um, with our uh, tremendous members that have already signed up on the platform. Spacely is one of 19 contractors that was selected for NASA's Open Innovation Services 2. What is that and why is it important? Yeah, so NASA had this, and I love this, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of worked with NASA alongside on some of the projects uh, with SpaceX uh, out in LA uh, when they were doing commercial launch for the first time. Um, this was my first time to really see uh, NASA up close and uh, from a different perspective, um, from, you know, from my own business. This, the, the, the recognition they had was we have a lot of smart people, we have a lot of tough problems, but we don't have a monopoly on either. And if we're going to solve some of these really hard problems, how do we engage citizen scientists and aspiring NASA people that maybe not think that they can work for NASA, but want to be involved in some way? And so their first iteration of the contract, Noise One, was, to their terms, a resounding success and gave them an opportunity to go to a second iteration of the contract. Their first phase of the contract was really crowdsourcing, uh, crowd building, crowdsourcing uh, challenges. And they really use that to go out to the crowd, a large you know, amount of people and say, hey, we're thinking about this, right? This lunar rover, we're thinking about this you know, other tough problem. What, what would you do? What would you think? And they really were able to use these other platforms to come back and get new ideas external from the organization. So it brought in new fresh ideas, other ideas, other ways of doing business. And NASA was able to use those platforms and those marketplaces uh, in a very uh, cohesive way to help shape how they were going to get after some of those tough problems. Uh, when they decided to do Noise 2, they wanted to expand the effort beyond just crowd building and crowdsourcing and challenges into what they call micro purchases and micro tasks. Uh, they worked with Freelancer recently to see what they could get for $25. Uh, I thought that was a fascinating experiment. What, mm. what can NASA get for $25, right? And so um, when we talk about micro purchases, micro tasks, I think of it as increasing velocity. So, okay, we're starting to show that some of this infrastructure works, these platforms, these models and concepts work. Now, how can you increase the velocity and your ROI on those and, uh, and, and show that these models are part of your overall engagement structure and how you're engaging talent across not only your internal organization, but externally that are passionate about helping you solve some of these tough problems. It's amazing to me to think that NASA can even bill twenty five dollars. Somebody would look at it. Isn't that missing a couple of zeros? I don't. Know. <laughs> yeah, it's been a, it's been great to see the types of challenges and uh, projects and tasks that have come out through um, the contract we have with them. Uh, we're we're teamed up uh, with two other companies, uh, three. I'm sorry, three other companies on that, and um, and we've had a, a great time responding to it. Uh, each of those task orders as they come out to see, you know, kind of what they're looking for. Um, but it's true. It's, it's really uh, interesting to see um, this idea that 
we don't have to spend, uh, you know, a billion dollars, you know, for a rocket. You know, SpaceX brought some of that thinking in, obviously, right? We significantly reduced the cost of launch. And now there's a whole bunch of launch companies, you know, focused on dollars per kilogram or, you know, the overall, um, you know, uh, periodicity of, of how, how quickly they can, and, you know, replenish and, and get, you know, launch rockets up. So we're now seeing an embracing of these concepts that have showed some initial return on investment and value. Now, how do we increase that so we can start to increase that ROI and, and, that, and that velocity of um, you know, the technology adoption and, and bringing those ideas to bear? Some of our older listeners and viewers may recognize the name Spacely. Um, <laughs> can you tell us that story? Because I, you, told, you told it to me before, and I find it fascinating. I'd like you to share it. Yeah, well, I, I, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, so I was a big Jetsons fan. Uh, when, I, uh, when we started putting the, the idea for the company together, it was John, Aaron, and Tom. It was the three of us. And, and because I'd flown jets and uh, we thought, okay, we'll do jet. It's kind of aerospace. And um, Aaron's first name started with A, though. And we said we needed to change his name to start with an E so it would fit within jet. Um, and so we kind of joked about that as we were, you know, kind of thinking about, you know, what the company would be. And, and then we said, okay, Jetsons is great. We'll do Jetsons. And as we really started to think about actually being a real company, we said, oh, that's, that's going to get us in trouble, you know, with, you know, Warner Brothers or Hanna-Barbera, whoever it is, you know, that, you know, <laughs> <the> Jetsons. <laughs> But we wanted to bring that futuristic idea and new concept and model to play. So um, my co-founder, John, um, you know, he was a big Jetsons fan too and knew Spacely Sprockets. And, you know, at the time, Calendly was just coming out and everything, all the new tech companies were either .io or .ly. And, um, and so we said, you know, at Spacely, um, you know, that, that's got a ring. Other things are coming out and it's got some background for us, at least, um, you know, the founders that were really excited about working in futuristic space activities. Um, so that's how we ended up with Spacely. We're going to close out here just in a moment, Tom, and I want you to, what's, oh, you've got the Spacely t-shirt on there. Yeah, My podcast <laughs> listeners won't be able to see that, but on the video, it'll be fine. <laughs> Tom, look out over the next five to uh, 10 to 15 years, rather, and tell me what you see coming in space commerce. Yeah, I'm seeing some really fascinating concepts right now. Uh, Copernic Space, uh, Grant Blaisdell, I just saw the announcement with Lunar Outpost. Mm -hmm. uh, they're uh, holding uh, payload space, digital space for NFTs. Uh, on the on the payload space, um, you know, Lunar Outpost also, you know, I think they had that famous, you know, dollar uh, contract with NASA, you know, for bringing back, um, you know, uh, you know, lunar soil. And so there's, there is, you know, this idea of, you know, are we going to get to a commercial space economy? And what does that look like? What does that mean? To me, other than space hotels and, and space tourism, and, and some of these other things that are further out in my mind, the first thing is, is I'm starting to see a space economy actually start to, to, you know, be built. And what I mean by that is, you know, we first had a, a land-based economy and then a sea-based economy and an air-based economy. And each of those have, uh, you know, kind of the mechanisms and infrastructure put in place to make that commerce exist. And with the formation of the Space Force, you know, folks were really kind of joking about that when Netflix was making fun of it or whatever. But I see that as just another iteration of the Navy protecting the global sea commons and the Air Force protecting the air corridors and the Army protecting the landmass, you know, a Corps of Engineers, you know, down in New Orleans, as an example. Right. And, you know, protecting the, the, the ability to trade and, and produce you know, economic commerce. And so the fact is, in, in my opinion, is we're starting to see the infrastructure be put in place that will allow and enable economic commerce to exist freely and safely and securely like we are in these other domains, but now in space. And so with that, who knows 
what will come out of it, right? We didn't know what types of commerce would be uh, created by having ability to transit across air, land, and sea. Um, and, and, and now the ability to potentially reduce those, those times significantly by going, you know, on, a, on more of a ballistic trajectory or, you know, in an orbital, you know, uh, manner, um, there's going to open up a, a ton of opportunities. And as long as we maintain a safe and secure environment, like we try to do in the other corridors, um, we're going to see a, a, a rapid uh, space economy develop uh, by using that infrastructure and corridor that we're starting to put together now. It's interesting you mentioned Grant because he's been a guest on this podcast as well. Uh, do you see with what you're doing with Spacely um, opportunities for companies to get more involved in cryptocurrency as a way to pay people and make those transactions go through the internet as opposed to sending a check? Yeah, we, you know, if, if we're, you know, I, I was you know, obviously a fan of Elon and what he's doing and, you know, they're talking about, okay, so say there's a society in Mars. Okay, well, there's, there's no gold bullion, there's no, you know, fiat currency. What is that currency? So we actually are excited about um, what these folks are doing with cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology. And we've been advancing that, um, those concepts in our company as well. We do have a, a, a currency, a digital currency as part of Spacely. So as you sign up, uh, you are able to attain, um, you know, digital currency. And, you know, we're, we're, there's all kinds of ideas, right? And this, it, these aren't new ideas necessarily. You know, you, if you have an airline card, you know, you build airline miles and you change that currency in for an airline ticket. Um, but we want to show that, you know, we do believe that uh, with Coinbase, and crypto technology and blockchain. And um, we, we really believe that uh, with smart assets and, um, you know, those types of things, we want to be involved in that and show that by your participation on a digital platform, we're thinking through those things and hopefully making it easier for you to um, work in a digital environment and a digital currency uh, and digital market, because we believe that is, um, you know, definitely a future we're going to see. Um, and, you know, it's so hard now these days, it's hard to even give cash away, right? You have cash and the you know, pandemic caused some of that. You don't want to be changing hands in, in cash. Um, but we're seeing more and more of a cashless society. And so a lot of these things are already being you know, um, supported by you know, digital transactions anyway. Tom, we're going to have to leave it there. I really appreciate you taking time to talk with me today. Yeah, thank you so much. And appreciate uh, you hosting us today. And we're always happy to talk about Spacely with, uh, with your, your folks out there at Xterra. That's going to do it for this edition of the Xterra podcast. You can subscribe to the audio version of the podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, and many other popular podcasting platforms. Be sure to click on subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode of the podcast or any of our other videos. You can also get daily news at xterrajsc.com. One thing more, be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at xterrajsc. Until next time, I'm Tom Patton. Thanks for listening.